0: Hello, and welcome to Songs for the Struggling Artist, the blogcast. This is episode 330. My name is Emily Rainbow Davis. Thank you for listening. And uh, I don't know who all the nice people were who listened to the one on uh, being a playwright in movies and uh, in novels, but um, welcome and thank you. And that was nice. There was an unusual amount of listens on that particular post. I don't understand anything. I just, not a thing. Uh, So in other things I don't understand news, um, I have now joined two additional social media platforms, Mastodon and Hive. Apparently Post is something I should look into as well. I don't understand anything Uh, but I will put those handles in the show notes. Why not? I, you know, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I don't understand anything. Um, especially when it comes to like, yeah, what, what people like (laughs) and respond to. It is, it is a, a giant mystery and that's okay. Mysteries I think are cool. So, you know, a little mystery never, never hurt. Well, I suppose it hurts a person who might be at the center of, say, a murder mystery. That might not be great. But uh, generally mysteries I find entertaining. So today's blog was inspired by an interview that I was the interviewee for. I got interviewed about my time working at Brooklyn Academy of Music, BAM, in the education department. The interview was very cool. Uh, It was fun to talk about old times. Weird to realize how long ago they were at this point. (laughs) Anyway, uh, most of this post is not really about that interview at all, but just about this one question she asked that made me laugh. And then I felt bad for laughing because it wasn't... it, it, It was a very sweet, earnest question. And for some reason, I just could not... Couldn't, couldn't keep the, the laugh in, um, I think, bec- just because I've had a lot of conversations about this particular topic, um, which is how do you make Shakespeare accessible to young people? And uh, you will hear all about it when I read it to you. So here it is. It's called Making Shakespeare Accessible. In an interview about my work in Shakespeare education, I was asked what we did to make Shakespeare accessible to the students. I couldn't help but laugh. To me, it's like asking, how do we make hip hop accessible to the students? How do we make Marvel movies accessible? You don't have to make Shakespeare accessible. It just is. Does everyone love it? Nope. That's okay. Not everyone loves Marvel movies either, believe it or not. But put a really fantastic Shakespeare play in front of students and they're just as likely, if not more likely, to enjoy it as a fancy grown-up crowd would. Are there tools to help them engage with it more deeply? Absolutely. I use them all the time. But the only preparation the entire student audience at BAM had for Ray Fiennes' Richard II... Was a 45-minute workshop from me in their classroom. And those students were into that show. Richard II. Not a Midsummer Night's Dream. Richard the freaking second. They get it. They got it. It wasn't that hard. This is true of most rigorous artworks. My friend has his students watch four hours of a Wagner opera in his class. Not all at once, granted. But despite lots of people declaring that those students aren't really capable of engaging with complex music, they love it. They're into it. They benefit from context, sure. Certainly in the way that I'd maybe enjoy a Marvel movie more if someone broke down some of the related backstories for me before I went. But ultimately... It's not a special skill to be able to enjoy or engage with a work of art. The conversation around accessibility is entirely backwards. We don't need to be discussing how to make things like Shakespeare accessible to students in terms of their understanding, because it is easily done. Open the door to the work, put powerful words in their mouths, maybe just a few at first, but eventually they'll be ready for all of them. Let their bodies be animated by exciting language and the access has happened. The real difficulty of access is making sure everyone is welcome in the building. It's making sure people with disabilities can come and experience everything. It's making sure there are affordable tickets for people who want to attend. That's the main accessibility issue as far as I'm concerned. Many times I've been a part of a breaking open of a student's world by bringing them to see some amazing show and they fall in love with the language and the feeling and the world. But how will they return? How could they afford a ticket without the grant funded student trip? How could they bring their grandmother to see what they have seen? That's the accessibility I'm concerned about. I've seen too many students who others have counted out, take hold of Shakespeare's language and shake the very foundations of their school. I will never forget the student who no one wanted to work with, who was a real pain in the ass for his teacher and whose school was in real trouble. And he took hold of Lancelot Gobo's speech in A Merchant of Venice and showed us all. He thought he was rebelling, doing it by himself, Because I'd structured the speech as an angel-devil exercise for groups of three students. But he wanted to do it alone. And was so good, we brought him to BAM to showcase his work. That speech was his. He owned it. No one imagined he could do it. But he was extraordinary. I've learned that the program I spent 13 years teaching Shakespeare for is gone. First, they cut off its limbs by separating it from live performance, and then they just ran a sword through it. So they don't teach Shakespeare there at all anymore. That's how you really make something inaccessible. You no longer give students access to it. And on one hand, I understand it. Shakespeare's hold on the American theater is extreme, and it prevents the work of women and people of color from rising through the ranks. It is very important that we give voice to writers other than Shakespeare. But it's not as if this theater that killed its Shakespeare for Students program has stopped producing Shakespeare for adult audiences. It's just not for young people anymore. And I'm afraid it's from some misguided idea that they just can't get it. That they are unable to understand it. Often, people with fancy degrees think you need a fancy degree to be able to relate to Shakespeare. And I'm sorry, but your fancy degree doesn't give you special powers that a kid from East New York doesn't have. You may be able to analyze the trochees, but that kid knows how that show made him feel. I feel like denying kids access to Shakespeare is denying them a multitude of valuable experiences. Could they learn to explore juicy language, expand their sense of possibility and self, discover a sense of size and power through another writer? Sure, of course they could. Will they, though? The movement has been toward nonfiction in schools. Shakespeare was the only one left. He was the only writer named in the Common Core. Sure, it'd be amazing if schools started teaching Adrian Kennedy all of a sudden, but I think it's unlikely to happen. Students will just get less literature in general and they'll see less live performance. We have decades of Shakespeare education. The culture is rich in references to his work. Giving kids access to his language means they're part of that conversation, not excluded from it. Giving kids powerful speeches to say means we're giving them powerful models that they may have in their bones when they run for office down the road. It may mean they have richer images to be inspired by as they write the great works of the future. The more exciting, rigorous, and visceral language we can give young people to say, the more tools they'll have for whatever they do. Does it have to be Shakespeare? No. You could try some Christopher Marlowe. I'm a big Thomas Middleton fan myself. But trading one dead white man Renaissance writer for another doesn't really help. And our culture has done a real great job of burying women and BIPOC writers, so sometimes it's hard to find writers that a school will recognize as literature. But, you know, please, teach them anyway. Find the ones that get students fired up, and please, show us all. But meanwhile, we've got Shakespeare. His work has inspired people for hundreds of years. Don't deny kids access to that power. That's the real accessibility issue. Since I wrote this piece, I have subsequently seen some Shakespeare at BAM, in the very place where this piece originated many years ago. So, yes, they are still, in fact, producing Shakespeare there. Just not for kids. No kids can go. I mean, they can go if they can buy a ticket, but can they buy a ticket? Probably not. Anyway, that's what I'm saying. I was real bummed out when I heard they got rid of that program entirely, even though it was already ruined. But, you know, still... Still, I knew it. I knew it was going that way. I could feel it. This piece was described to me as a barn burner by one of my friends, which is very cool. I don't think it actually burned any barns or any theater institutions or any arts institutions in general. But of course, they would have had to have read it to be burned by it, I suppose. Well, maybe they'll listen to it. If so, welcome. Welcome arts institution people. I'm glad to have you. Thank you for listening. Open your doors. Thank you. So the song today is a song you may not be familiar with. I thought about doing something super popular, you know, to sort of bring home the, uh, uh, how silly it is to feel like we need to make things that are popular accessible. Um, But the, the field was too wide for that. So I just went on my sort of playlist of songs that I would like to do at some point, songs I'm thinking about, Um, and there's a song um, called Potter's Wheel, uh, which you probably don't know this version of um, unless you're from my hometown or maybe a little farther beyond. It's a song I've loved for a long time, and it's extremely accessible. (laughs) Like that means anything. Anyway, you won't have trouble understanding it is all I'm saying. Uh, It's apparently written by Bill Danoff, which I did not know before. Uh, I I know this song because my Alexander teacher, my first Alexander teacher, Freda Epstein, uh, used to do it with her band, Freda and Acoustic Attitude. It's on their album that came out in, like, 1993, apparently. Um, I did not know that they did not write this song. <laughs> apparently, Bill Danoff wrote it. Bill Danoff is the guy who wrote Country Road. And um, I, learned it, I learned that John Denver did a recording of this song in 1991. Uh, and Freda did hers in 1993. So this was after the John Denver song version. Um, which I listened to for the first time in preparing this song. It made me see some of Freda's particular genius and what she and her band ended up doing with the song. And speaking of access, I feel like one of the things I learned in working on this song is what an incredible gift having access to a woman like Freda in my youth was. Like what a gift that was. It was profound and to, uh, get to spend time with her, to learn from her and to listen to her stuff now and really be able to see some of the things that she was doing that I'm not sure I really got, even though I responded to, um, you know, in a more visceral way at the time. Uh, now I can like go like, Oh, this is what she's doing there. It's so interesting. So you, you, there's layers, right? Of any encounter you have with a work of art there's how you encounter it for the first time with no information at all and then how you how you kind of grow with something or rediscover it or encounter it again anew anyway I feel very lucky that I had the opportunity to to study with her in my youth and um that's what I mean about access right access so it's also funny because I wasn't thinking this song had much to do with this blog in terms of content but in fact it is a bit about education <laughs> and I just didn't put that together but it is in fact quite quite appropriate the other thing and I'm just gonna give you so much context and you're gonna be like hey I just give me the work but let me tell you this song was written in the 80s, I believe. The first recording of it is 1985. So there's this whole thing where he's talking about future children, right? Like, what do we tell our children? How do we? Get, how are they going to learn? Blah, blah, blah. And, like, those kids that he's talking about, like, that's my generation. Like, when he's like, what are these kids going to do with all this war and destruction and all of this terrible stuff? Like, he's talking about my generation like he's looking around at kids going like what are these people going to do when they get older it's a good question man it's a very good question Uh, yeah so let me play it for you in in just a minute but meanwhile thank you so much for listening to all of that contextualization and um if you like this blogcast, thank you. Please tell someone about it. Like, review, subscribe, share. Um, and if you'd like to support it with your dollars, that would be amazing. Patreon.com slash Emily R. Davis. There's also Ko-fi, there's PayPal. All those links are in the show notes. And any and all support is much appreciated. So, on guitar, here we go. This is Potter's Wheel.
1: fast becoming younger the news is all they've ever known they've seen the wars, the hurt the hunger how will they choose when they are grown what do we tell forever's children when it's their turn to hurt and heal whatever spins a grim tornado can also turn a potter's wheel take a little clay, put it on a wheel get a little hint how God must feel, give a little turn listen to it spin, make it any shape you want it in To their dreams not burning steel it's not in body They survive the potter's throw. Take a little clay, put it on a wheel. Get a little hint how God must feel. Give a little turn, listen to it spin. Make it any shape you want. They'll find our civilization Or what is left of it to be found They'll find the weapons of destruction the buried deep within that hole They'll find the message and the promise Of that sin